Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Residents of Southern California are bracing for powerful winds, thunderstorms, and significant rainfall as Hurricane Hillary approaches. The Category 3 storm has maximum sustained winds of 115 miles per hour. For the first time, the National Weather Service has issued a tropical storm warning for much of the region. And while the storm remains a potent hurricane as it hugs Mexico's Baja, California, reporter Matt Gillum explains it is expected to weaken before unleashing on the Golden State. The brunt of Hillary is expected to hit Southern California Sunday, and by then, forecasters predict the hurricane will have decayed to a tropical storm. Even with the downgrade, parts of Southern California could get a record soaking as the storm moves through. While much of the Los Angeles area could see around three inches of rain as the storm bears down, desert areas to the east, like Palm Springs, could be inundated with up to seven inches. On average, the resort city sees about four to five inches a year. In addition to the threat of flooding, the region's famed beaches are expected to take a beating. Forecasters say the system will generate large swells that could produce rip currents and life-threatening surf. The last time a tropical storm made landfall in Southern California was 1939. For NPR News, I'm Matt Gillum. A Russian missile hit the Ukrainian city of Chernihiv today, killing at least seven people and injuring dozens. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky condemns the attack, describing it as terrorism. NPR's Brian Mann has more. The Russian missile struck a central square in Chernihiv, a city north of Kiev. The blast occurred near a university, heavily damaging a theater building. Ukrainian officials said one six-year-old girl died and roughly a dozen other children are among the wounded. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky, on a diplomatic trip to Sweden, Sweden issued a statement saying this is what it means to live next to a terrorist state. From the start of this war, Russia has regularly aimed missiles and drone attacks at civilian areas of Ukrainian cities. Ukraine, meanwhile, continues the slow, grinding counteroffensive along front lines in the east and south, with officials reporting slow incremental gains. Brian Mann, NPR News, Uman, Ukraine. Voters in Guatemala head to the polls tomorrow for the presidential election. Maria Martin reports it's happening in a tense atmosphere after a complicated campaign that despite assurances from the president, many voters worry. Guatemala's president Alejandro Chamate went on national television Friday to deny rumors his government will interfere with the electoral process. But many voters are skeptical as his Justice Department continues to prosecute the party of anti-corruption candidate Bernardo Arevalo, who's leading in the polls, while a leaked video from the campaign of his rival, former First Lady Sandra Torres, indicates her supporters plan to challenge the vote results nationwide. Maria Martin reporting from Guatemala. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Cities and towns that do not agree to follow the state's major housing law will be shut out from some state grants. That's part of the Healy administration's new guidelines for the MBTA Communities Act. State Housing Secretary Ed Augustus says the new penalties will encourage municipalities to comply. Given the importance of housing production at this moment in the history of the Commonwealth where we have a housing crisis, we need to make sure we use this tool as effectively and as aggressively as we possibly can so that we can create as much housing uh, to meet these needs. And some municipalities that have access to public transportation say they would not be able to handle the multifamily housing developments that are required. 
A coalition of business and neighborhood groups want a recovery campus to be built on land owned by the MBTA to address the crime and drug use in the area known as Mass and Cass in Boston. The group says using the vacant Widette Circle property could help protect public health and safety while addressing the needs of people experiencing homelessness and suffering from substance abuse disorder. The MBTA plans to use Widette Circle as a rail yard. Boston is moving ahead with plans to reestablish a recovery campus on Long Island once the new bridge to the Harbor Island is completed in just a few years. The New England Patriots kick off against the Packers tonight in Green Bay. It's the Patriots' second preseason game. ESPN reporter Mike Reese says it looks like Patriots quarterback Mac Jones and the other starters will not get much time on the field tonight. Bill Belichick, the head coach, said that the team got some great work practicing against the Packers in Green Bay uh, this week over two days. He estimated about 140 snaps for the offense and defense over the two days. And they look at that as comparable to what they would get in a game situation. The Patriots open the regular season against the Philadelphia Eagles on September 10th. Red Sox beat the Yankees 8-1 in New York today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ping Huang. We begin a day in Maui, where some of the numbers are telling us more about one of the deadliest fires in U.S. history and where the recovery stands. At least 114 people have been killed. Authorities say nearly 80% of the burned area has been searched. And FEMA says nearly 6,000 people affected by the fire have registered for federal assistance, and that's more than $5 million have already been distributed. NPR's Greg Allen joins us now from Maui with more. Hey, Greg. Hi. So, Greg, on Friday night, Hawaii's governor gave an address about the fire and the future. What did he have to, what did he have to say? Well, you know, it was just a short speech, but he said 2,200 buildings were destroyed in Lahaina and 500 more were damaged at a cost of some $6 billion. And he was joined by his wife, uh, Jamie Kanuni Green, who talked about the loss that this represents for Native Hawaiians. More than 200 years ago, King Kamehameha I unified our islands and made Lahaina the capital of the Hawaiian Kingdom. Over two centuries, with their aloha, their dedication, and their hard work, the people of Lahaina built their town into a special place. Greg, it's such a sorrowful time. I'm wondering how people are dealing with this almost unimaginable level of loss. Well, as you can imagine, there's a lot of mourning going on still here and will be for some time. Here's a scene yesterday at a beachside park in Lahaina where a group of community activists, some of them Native Hawaiian, held a press event. Tiari Lawrence, who grew up in Lahaina, had a message that she delivered to the governor. The fire occurred only 10 days ago and many people are still in shock and mourning. The governor should not rush to rebuild the community without first giving people time to heal especially without including the community itself in the planning. Greg, what are officials saying? Uh, yeah, well, you know, yesterday in Lahaina, reporters were asking uh, Mayor Richard Bisson about the many missing people. There's hundreds still unaccounted for officially, and reporters were asking him about 
as are those numbers real? He said that many so far have turned out to be staying with friends and family, and many others just haven't reported in yet. Obviously, there's no one left in that area that would be alive, uh, so it would only be someone who made a, you know, made arrangements to stay at some somewhere else and hasn't reached out yet. So you hopeful that the great majority of those still unaccounted for could be alive? Well, of course, I'm hopeful that everyone that is not accounted for is alive, yes. And Greg, what about the people displaced from the fire? Where are they staying? Well, many have been in shelters, but the county says the numbers there have dropped significantly in recent days, and people have begun moving into temporary housing, some in hotels and Airbnbs. Others are staying with family and friends. I visited a home, for example, yesterday in Maui, where 87 people have been staying on and off since the fire. But people are now looking for longer-term housing which while they consider how to rebuild. And Greg, what are you hearing about how Lahaina should be rebuilt? Well, you know, there's a lot of discussions and fears in the air about uh, how Lahaina will be rebuilt. Uh, since the fire, Governor Josh Green has asked the state's attorney general to impose a temporary moratorium on property sales in Lahaina if possible. And there are fears that people will be displaced and the special character of Lahaina could be gone forever. In his address last night, the governor pledged that would not be the case. Let me be clear. Lahaina belongs to its people and we are committed to rebuilding and restoring it the way they want it. And President Biden is scheduled to visit Maui on Monday. I expect we'll be hearing more then about rebuilding. That's NPR's Greg Allen. He's joining us from Maui. Thanks so much for joining us, Greg. You're welcome. I want to stay on that last point that we heard from Greg about the plans to rebuild those communities that were lost. Building back after a megafire is a huge undertaking, and it's one that Jennifer Gray Thompson has personal experience with. She's CEO of the nonprofit After the Fire USA. Jennifer survived the devastating North Bay fires that swept through California's Sonoma County in 2017. And since then, she's been working with communities impacted by wildfires all over the country. When I spoke with her earlier this week, she told me how the rebuilding process can vary from place to place. The standard playbook, you know, for some parts is the same. Like every community is eligible for a lot of federal funding, but actually accessing that funding, if you have low capacity, like a community of maybe 15,000 people, that county, they have a much harder time accessing the federal funds that they are eligible for. A place like Sonoma County is much wealthier. Our yearly budget is over $2 billion and we have 500,000 people. We were pretty much rebuilt in under five years. In contrast, when you have some low capacity areas, but with a very passionate community like Paradise, they'll be about 25% rebuilt in five years. And it's not because we are smarter than them at all, a wonderful community. It's because of access to funding. And then also what really plays into it is the land value piece as well. So uh, who is in charge of organizing and actually doing the rebuilding? Whose job is that? So it's always the community. Every single rebuild has to begin with the community and FEMA and all these federal agencies and the VOAD. They really try to get people sort of going and, and, you know, provide some immediate services. And then communities turn around in a couple of months and they're basically in this by themselves with just the federal government and perhaps some philanthropy in order to do long-term recovery. Long-term recovery in megafires is very, in all disasters actually, is very, very limited um, it's not a place where people are going, you know, three years later to donate. Most of the money for recovery comes in in the first six to eight weeks. 
a lot of that will determine how the local economy and recovery will go from there. You know, the center of it is always the community affected. So explain that for me one more time. So it sounds like you're saying that the there's a flood of money that comes in from the federal government, from donors, from people who are aware of the wildfire or the natural disaster situation. And that all comes in in the first two months, and then that's the pot of money that communities usually try to rebuild with? Yes, the vast majority of the money comes in in the first two months. A place like Maui, where people have um, you know, a memory there and a, an attachment to it, those places do get far more donations. And so in some ways, they are much better set up for their recovery, but it really depends on how those are deployed. Other places I've seen, like in um, Hurricane Michael in Panama City, they only got about a million dollars in donations. So we see huge variations. We expect Maui to probably be in the two to three hundred million dollars of philanthropic dollars um, on the ground. Mm -hmm. And that's money that people who see the wildfires are donating to the cause. It's separate from money from the federal government, for instance, or private insurance money. Exactly. It's very separate. You know, it's it's really a huge concern of ours when we see this fire, especially in Maui. One of the things you run into is when you have multi-generational housing, some of it with no mortgages attached, we often also see no insurance, especially because so many of those neighborhoods, even though the land value is very high, the uh, population was a lot of working class people. So we are very concerned about what was their level of insurance, but we are heartened by the amount of donations that have been coming into the local community. It's very important that we donate locally because that will determine who controls the money moving forward will also help in the recovery. If it's good to donate to some national organizations. I'm not discounting them, but it's really important that we prioritize the community so that they have control as they are the ones who actually do the heavy lift of community recovery. So when you look at Lahaina today, how long do you think it might realistically take for people to start living there again? I think you'll see some people living there again in about 14 months. I think that the debris removal process, which is very intensive, but now there's a lot more practice at it, will take about seven to eight months. Once that is done, then you'll start to see some people, you know, coming back either in, in trailers. It depends on certain things that happen. In a mega fire, a lot of times the infrastructure under the earth is damaged, including the water system. So we have to see how that plays out as well. I do expect to see quite a bit of rebuilding between year two and year three. I would predict pretty safely that Maui will be rebuilt, including the business area, in about five years, six years at most, because of the high land values, the community cohesion, the amount of donations that will be offered that are already coming in, and the love for the community from everybody, including the entire state of Hawaii and how they're all leaning in. Given that, you know, you you said your earliest thinking of someone returning to live in Lahaina would be 14 months. I mean, over a year is a long time to be without a home. Do you find that many people just leave the community altogether instead of staying to rebuild? Sometimes people are just too traumatized and they just can't. They can't live in the same place. They can't go through that on any level ever again. But most of the community does lean in to rebuild. I am heartened. At all of the donations going in locally, I'm hoping that some of those are deployed to really help people who lived there before rebuild back. But not only that, really importantly, they need to think about how are they going to rebuild back not the same way that they burned down, which means climate resilient housing. That's a point of equity. It tends to cost a little bit more on the 
on the front side, but they can rebuild back their housing stock for the next 100 years by using existing materials and technology. Jennifer, based on what you've seen with other communities that rebuilds, what does a rebuilt community look like? Does it resemble the community that was there before? Does it look drastically different? So one of the hardest things we have to tell communities is that the day before the fire is gone, what everything looked like is gone and your internal life, what it looked like is gone. That's why we're called after the fire, because when people talk about it, they put everything in terms of before the fire and after the fire. It will not look the same. Will the heart be the same? Yes, probably even stronger, the collective heart of the community. The one thing we see in every single mega fire, no matter if it's a frontier, suburban community, rural community, does not matter, is what people want to get back is their connection to each other. That's Jennifer Gray Thompson, the CEO of After the Fire USA. Jennifer, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Susan Levy. Coming up at 6 on WBUR, it's the Moth Radio Hour. We put the adage older and wiser to the test with stories of children providing new perspectives and taking charge in school, in the woods, and on a life-or-death journey. The Moth Radio Hour starts at 6. WBUR occasionally offers you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts, While a pledge is appreciated, it's not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and Associated Sweepstakes Entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to our website, wbur.org. 71 degrees at 518, mostly cloudy tonight, sunshine tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly through October 29th. FranklinParkZoo.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The death toll on Maui has risen to at least 114 as search efforts continue. Officials say nearly 80 percent of the burn areas have been searched. The state's governor, Josh Green, says 470 search teams and 40 search dogs are combing through the hundreds of burned buildings. At least seven people are dead, dozens injured after Russian missile strike hit the town center and theater today in Chernihiv. Ukraine's president condemns the attack, describing it as terrorism. And both India and Russia are planning missions to the moon next week. They will attempt to land robotic probes in the south polar region where scientists say there might be water ice in craters. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ping Huang. Noise. It's a part of life. 
The sounds you hear most may depend on where you live, a rural community versus urban, city or suburbs, but a completely quiet home in America is hard to come by. And according to the experts, no matter where you live, it's getting louder. We have uh, more transportation around us. This might be road traffic, rail traffic, air traffic. There's many other sources of noise coming from outdoor power equipment, industry, um, entertainment venues, and, and so forth. Jamie Banks is founder and president of the nonprofit Quiet Communities, and groups like hers are part of a growing movement that sees chronic noise exposure as not just a nuisance, but a health risk. The medical community is beginning to notice the magnitude and long-term effects that noise has at the cellular level. New research published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology finds such noise pollution may have an effect on your heart health. New York City Council member Gail Brewer is trying to make one of America's noisiest cities a little quieter. New York City is exciting and noise comes with it. For me, the issue is the noise has to stay within the Department of Environmental Protection guidelines because they exist and that's the law. She introduced legislation that would require emergency vehicles to use low-frequency sirens. This comes as noise complaints have skyrocketed since the pandemic. In the last year, we've had, you know, 300 complaints about noise, including some of the ones that you just mentioned, um, sirens. Leaf blowers, construction noise is another one. And the city has had 45,000 complaints to 311. Noise is something many of us have learned to live with. We just tune it out. But noise researcher Erica Walker says that that complacency can be a problem, especially in places with chronic noise pollution, because it's affecting our health. I've spent years learning how to block out the din of daily life, and now I wanted to learn how to unblock it to understand just how much noise we live with. So I went on a sound tour with Walker. It's the middle of the day in the middle of the summer. We're in Kennedy Plaza in downtown Providence, Rhode Island. We're in the middle of the city of Providence, where Walker is a noise researcher at Brown University. You got people, transportation, music, this is just like quintessential urban environment. She studies how noise pollution affects people's health. Our first stop is this bus depot where we meet a woman named Keisha who asks us to only use her first name because we were discussing what is a contentious issue in the community, which is sound. She doesn't mind the way the city sounds. Trees, wind, buses, people, birds, public. <laughs> I can't complain. I'm just trying to get to work. <laughs> Here, the sounds are temporary, but it's the noise at home that's the problem. Businesses with loud music, it's ridiculous. All hours of the night, it's crazy. Call the police, nothing gets done. I can't sleep with a speaker coming out of a SUV till 7 o'clock in the morning. Noise pollution is unwanted sound, and it can affect the body in a few different ways. For those who live or work in very loud places, it can damage their hearing. But Walker says it can still affect their health. It's that, yeah, it's that response of calling 311 over and over and over again. It's the, I can't sleep at night. It's the, I feel like I'm going to have to sell my house and move out. It is the, I had to go to the emergency room because I had a panic attack. It's, I can't sleep, I can't hear my children. It's all of those things. Chronic noise exposure in places where you live can put your body in constant fight or flight mode. It can lead to hypertension, heart problems, and a decline in mental health. 
Walker came to this work because of her own experience. Years ago, she was living in an apartment in Boston. A family moves in above me with two really small kids. And of course, those two very small kids ran across their floor, which was my ceiling for like 24 hours a day. While it sounded like joy to their parents, it was a constant stressor in her life. She documented the noise, started recording her stress levels, and even collected her saliva to test for stress hormones. When I go hard, I go hard. <laughs> <laughs> her goal was to get the family evicted until a trusted friend channeled her frustrations into the fields of public health, helping communities deal with noise. Next, we head to a residential neighborhood. So we're in a really posh neighborhood off of Blackstone Boulevard in Providence, Rhode Island. We're standing in the shade of a leafy tree next to a beautiful lawn. You can hear the low hum of air conditioning and you can hear the birds. I just feel like everything just slowed down considerably. You know, you hear an occasional dog barking, cars drive by slower. You feel like you can just hear yourself think. Walker says that this is the sound of privilege and that this quiet should be something everyone gets in their lives. But we are standing in a neighborhood of million dollar homes. It's where a lot of professors live, though not Walker. Erica, should we head to our last stop? Yeah, absolutely. I'm ready. Where are we headed? We're headed to Pawtucket, Rhode Island, which is where I live. The impacts of noise pollution can't be fully captured in decibels. That's what Walker's research shows. A few years ago, she did a study on people living near Fenway Park, which is an open-air baseball stadium in Boston. On game days, there's music, there's announcers, there's military aircraft flyovers. So yeah, they can be extremely loud, but it was something that the community agreed to, right? But when the stadium was used as a concert venue, the neighbors got upset, even though the volume of the sound was about the same. People were like, we didn't sign up for this. The emotional response to the concerts was just outrageous. Walker found that the source of the noise and whether people felt like they had agreed to it matters a lot. I'm more concerned about the emotional responses because I feel like that is what's driving the health impacts. We get to Pawtucket, just north of Providence. It was an early hub for the textile industry, and it still has a lot of manufacturing. I just feel like everything just slowed down considerably. You know, you hear an occasional dog barking, cars drive by slower. You feel like you can just hear yourself think. We stand on a narrow sidewalk overlooking six lanes of high-speed traffic on Interstate 95. On one side, there's like houses, there's a street, there's a little sidewalk, and there's the interstate. It's the view from Walker's home. The traffic is pretty much 24 hours a day. Walker owns a unit in a converted textile mill, and as a noise researcher, she's got some tricks to mask the sounds. At night, I do more brown noise. It sort of offsets the sound from the heavy trucks. But during the day, like a soundtrack that sounds like waterfalls, that really helps. But it's not just the noise. The things that cause the noise cause other problems, too. I run around here, right? This is my neighborhood. I run, and sometimes after I get finished running, I definitely can taste like a little soot in my mouth. So I know that there are air quality issues. Walker calls noise pollution a canary in a coal mine for air pollution, water pollution, visual pollution. Basically, if it's noisy, that means that there are other contaminants. You know, I know people would ask, well, why would it, somebody want to live next to Interstate 95? And it's like, for a lot of people, they have no choice. And this is literally the only place I could afford. She says our cities and neighborhoods can be better designed for reducing the stress of noise pollution. One of her favorite quiet places is a park in Boston. 
in the middle of a hospital district with sirens going off and helicopters overhead. But like you walk up a little hill, you get to the top of this park, and it is like one of the most quiet and serene places I've ever been in. She says that nothing beats the feeling of simply being at peace. Jamie Banks wants more communities to find that peace. She's the founder and president of Quiet Communities. It's a nonprofit that works to reduce the harms of noise pollution. We called her to talk about how far the U.S. has to go in addressing those harms. We started out talking about the health risks that noise pollution poses. When people think of noise, they automatically think about their ears. And when noise is loud enough, it can certainly damage the ears, and chronic noise can also damage the ears. But there's many other non-hearing health effects of noise. So what happens is that each noise event can set off an involuntary stress response in the body. And what happens is that noise can activate what's known as the autonomic nervous system. That's the nervous system that controls involuntary things like our heart rate, blood pressure, breathing, and so forth. So when the autonomic nervous system gets activated, stress hormones like cortisol and epinephrine are released, and this increases things like blood pressure, heart rate, blood sugar, these kinds of risk factors. Now, when people are hearing chronic noise, this puts them into a chronic stress state. This can cause over time things like heart disease, high blood pressure, anxiety, depression, um, metabolic disturbances, and even increase premature mortality from these types of conditions. I wanted to ask you about the distribution of noise pollution. So there was a 2017 study in the journal Environmental Health Perspectives, and what it found was that noise pollution is worse in segregated cities and neighborhoods with predominantly black and brown residents. And it's been a few years since that study. So can we say weather pollution, noise pollution has gotten better or worse in these places? That's a good question. There's nothing to suggest that it's gotten better. A lot of the noise pollution that are being experienced by those communities are tied to historic placement of those communities in areas that might be closer to industry, that might be closer to airports and so forth, things that are sources of loud and chronic noise. Those kinds of things are still being perpetuated today in policy decisions that tend to protect wealthier communities from those sorts of exposures and not protect poorer communities as well. Mm -hmm. What are some of the measures that have been used to protect communities from noise and, and what can city or federal officials do to address these disparities when it comes to that? Um, Ping, the first thing that's really needed is a greater awareness about noise and its adverse effects. There's very little awareness, and this stems from the fact that the United States today does not have an effective noise control program. In the 1970s, there was a program, and that was doing things like educating people, providing funding for research and so forth, and really um, making people more aware of the dangers of noise. You know, as we're talking, I'm wondering if there are communities or cities that you found that have done the best in addressing noise pollution, and I'm wondering how they did it. Unfortunately, a lot of the 
uh, work has been done over in Europe. And so anecdotally, we know that people that we correspond with that have gone over there say, wow, it is much quieter over there. There's a calmer environment, a quieter environment in general. There's even some countries that have, you know, no noise days, like on Sundays. I mean, what do you think is the difference between, you know, the policies that they have and are able to implement in some of these places in Europe versus what you're able to accomplish here? In the early 2000s, the European Union created a noise directive that gave general guidance for how communities could start to pay attention to noise and mitigate noise. You know, just like we have states in the United States, the European Union has its individual states or countries. Each of those countries are obliged to submit a strategic plan on how they're going to reduce noise. And what they do is identify the most common exposures. Transportation is a big one, air, rail, and and um, road transportation, and then identify ways to mitigate it. I'm wondering what the ultimate goal for a group like yours is. You know, do you envision cities, you know, like parts of the country without noise? Like, what is the goal for you? Our goal is to encourage communities to be aware of noise and to promote quiet as a valuable natural resource. So quiet is important for learning. It's important for health and well-being. It's important for our environment. And of course, we're going to have sources of noise. But what we want to do is prevent the most excessive sources of noise from harming people and the environment. Jamie Banks is the founder and president of Quiet Communities. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. What if we told you that play is a basic human need? That's what play researchers believe. It's as basic as sleep and nutrition. It just doesn't necessarily produce the same outcome as hunger or fatigue. But the need to play is there in all of us. That's Dr. Stuart Brown, a longtime play researcher and psychiatrist by training. And he says that play can help us adapt to difficult circumstances, to practice skills that we need to survive. But as adults, we often stop playing, and sometimes we even forget how to do it. So Mariel Seguera, the host of NPR's Life Kit, is going to help us remember. You probably have an idea of what play is, but here's a definition just in case. I define play as any joyful act where you forget about time. It's where you're like fully immersed in the moment. It's when you're your youest you. Jeff Harry is a play coach. Companies hire him to get their employees to play more. And he says if you want to play, you can start by getting in touch with your inner child. Your kid self knows what makes you happy. Your kid self knows what makes you fulfilled and satisfied. So what were your favorite ways to play as a kid? Were you super into Legos or finger painting, make-believe, catching fireflies, seeing how far you could catapult yourself off the swing set? For me, it was Barbies. I loved to dress them up in the coolest fashions. Hello, Barbie. Let's go for a drive. Cool, meet you. Okay, so next you're going to think about what kind of play that is. 
you know, what's at the center of it? Based on many years of working with patients, Dr. Stuart Brown and his colleagues came up with some archetypal play styles or personalities. For example, there's the joker, who loves to laugh and make other people laugh. There's the kinesthete, who just loves to move. There's also the artist creator, as Barbie's personal stylist, my inner child, fell into this category. Once you know your play style or styles, you can start to figure out how you like to play now. Like I built a gallery wall of art behind my couch and recently went to a panel on fashion and hip hop. Another suggestion from Jeff Harry, for five or 10 minutes a day, put down your phone and your laptop and do nothing. When you get bored, all of a sudden, that inner child starts to whisper all these nerve-sided ideas, these ideas that make you nervous and excited. You know, ideas like, hey, you know, why don't you start writing that book or that blog post? Why don't you make a video on TikTok? Now, you may feel like you barely have time in the day to sit down, let alone play, but you can always find moments to be playful. Dr. Brown told me that on the morning of our interview, he walked out of his house to get his copy of the New York Times. Which is uh, part of my 90-year-old ritual now. And there on the uh, step in front of me was a little Oregon Junko. And that little Oregon Junko was looking up at me and jumping up and down and jumping up and down. And I thought, that little bird is really glad to be alive. Okay, so am I. I'm an old guy, but I'm still glad to be alive. So go pet that cute puppy on the street with permission. Or pick up a pine cone at the park and ask your friend to name it. Or, my favorite, watch people flirting on your subway car. Do what feels like play and see where it takes you. For NPR News, I'm Mary Elsegara. And for more Life Kit, check out npr.org slash lifekit. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. So glad you're with us. I'm Susan Levy. Coming up at 6 on the Moth Radio Hour, we put the adage older and wiser to the test with stories of children providing new perspectives and taking charge. Join us at 8 in the morning tomorrow for Weekend Edition Sunday. Several GOP presidential candidates spoke at a news conference in Georgia this week, but they largely avoided speaking about former President Donald Trump's indictment in that state earlier in the week. We'll dive into that story, plus play the Sunday puzzle. Weekend Edition Sunday starts at 8 tomorrow morning. Tap and listen to WBUR anywhere the summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything that you might have missed. Download or update the WBUR app now. 71 degrees at 539. Stay with us. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Southern California is bracing for Hurricane Hillary. The storm is expected to reach Mexico's Baja California Peninsula tonight and weekend before heading to Southern California tomorrow. The National Hurricane Center is warning of catastrophic and life-threatening floods.
U.S. Ambassador Kathleen Fitzgibbon is in Niger, where she's advocating for a diplomatic solution to a political crisis. This after a coup took place last month. And China's military launched naval and air force drills around the island of Taiwan today. Beijing says it's a warning for anyone supporting Taiwan independence. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. SmartMouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com. And from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ping Huang. The 64th and final game of the 2023 Women's World Cup Soccer Tournament is scheduled for tomorrow in Sydney, Australia. And the host country is dealing with some disappointment. Earlier today, Sweden and Australia battled for third place, and Sweden emerged victorious. So now that we know who won the bronze, who's going to win silver and gold? It comes down to Spain and England, and whichever team wins will be a first-time world champion. Joining us now is reporter Sophie Downey, who's been traveling between New Zealand and Australia to cover the tournament for the past month. Welcome, Sophie. Hey, thank you for having me on. So, Sophie, how would you characterize this final match between Spain and England? Is there a clear favorite to win? Um, I wouldn't say there's a clear favorite. I think both sides have their weaknesses and both their strengths, obviously. Um, I think probably mentality-wise, England edge it because they were in the final last summer as well uh, in the European Championships back in England, and they won that, that final. So I think mentally they've, they've already been in a big showpiece environment, so that might just give them a little something. Um, but I think it's going to be a very, very um, interesting and intriguing matchup between the two. Yeah, there's, you know, there are definitely strong players on both sides. So who are the key players to watch for tomorrow for both Spain and England? So if you're looking at England, probably the front two, I think, is um, Lauren Hemp and Alessi Russo. They've uh, found a partnership this tournament that they probably didn't know existed before beforehand. So um, it's really come to life and they play off each other um, really nicely in that front two. Um, I guess the question for England is if Lauren James comes back into the fold. Um, she took the tournament by storm in the first two games, but then got sent off. So hasn't played for a couple of games, um, but she's now available for selection. So that's going to be a big one for Serena Wiegmann to decide. On the side of Spain, um, you've obviously got, um, you know, like uh, Alexei Puteas, who is the uh, two times Ballon d'Or winner. She's been struggling to come back from an ACL injury. So she's sort of played it like limited minutes this tournament. Um, and then they've got a really um, interesting young kid, 19-year-old, uh, Sama Paruello, um, and she has been super exciting. She scored the winner against the Netherlands in the quarterfinals, and then she scored again against Sweden in the semifinals, so she's one to watch. Great. I want to come back to the third-place match that took place earlier. I'm sure it was a letdown for Australia's fans, even though they still made it pretty far in the tournament. So what's the mood been like today? Um, I was in the uh, fan park in Sydney watching the game and they were 
incredibly buoyant beforehand and maybe a little bit disappointed afterwards. Yeah. I think it was just uh, one game too far for them, you know. All of that excitement of the semi-final just a few days ago against England in front of 75,000 in Stadium Australia, that's a lot of emotions. And I think they just look tired, um, if you know what I mean. That It's yeah. been a long tournament. Um, but I think if you step away from the result, maybe, and look at what that team has achieved in Australia over the last month, it's been pretty indescribable, you know, the effect that it has had on this country and the way that the nation has got behind the, the football and, and kind of embraced the team as well. You know, there's literally been queues and queues of people outside Nike stores and um, outside the fan zones to try and get in to watch, watch them play. And um, that's sort of unprecedented um, in Australia. <laughs> so just in a minute, I want to ask, I know that there's a, there's been several surprises in this tournament, you know, including an unexpected early exit for the U.S. So what are your key takeaways from this year's World Cup? Um, I think women's football is closer than it has ever been before. You know, everyone is competitive. Everyone is, is catching up, as it were, with the U.S. The USA set the standard for so long. And um, you're now starting to see the fruits of like the investment of the European nations, of other nations as well. Uh, we've had some... What My biggest surprise, I think, is I thought this, the expansion to 32 teams uh, was maybe a little bit from 24, was maybe a little bit too soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm so glad I was um, proved wrong because they've uh, the, added, the, the new teams have all added something to the tournament. You know, the likes of Ireland... Mm-hmm. Um, Haiti, all of those, they've all come to compete. None, there's been no seriously big scores. It's all been all right. super Sophie, competitive. We're going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us. Okay. That's reporter Sophie Downey in Australia. Asian American doctors are not a rare sight. It's no secret that in Asian American culture, many children are encouraged to pursue a career in medicine. I know that my parents certainly did. But they don't appear often in the upper echelons of medicine. Several recent studies addressing the topic found that while Asian Americans are well represented as physicians and researchers, very few continue up the ladder to senior positions like dean or department chair. This underrepresentation in leadership is something that's often overlooked since Asian Americans are so visibly present in medicine. But doctors I spoke with say that it's a result of bias and discrimination that needs to be called out. Dr. Peter Yu, a pediatric surgeon who practices at Children's Hospital of Orange County and at UC Irvine, did a study on the topic 10 years ago. What we found was that Asian Americans, after they matriculated into medical school, after they finished their training, functioned as doctors, as boots on the ground, so to speak, but did not ascend to leadership positions. You found that there were zero Asian American medical school deans from 1997 to 2008, a period of more than a decade. The problem, he says, hasn't gotten much better since. Dr. Richard Pan, a pediatrician in Sacramento, California, says that he's seen it and he's lived it throughout his career. I myself have experienced the same thing many of my Asian American colleagues have, which is when leadership positions open up, we are not often identified as people who should be considered for those leadership positions. I asked Pan why he thinks Asian Americans are often overlooked for leadership positions. Certainly there's a combination of factors. There are stereotypes of Asian Americans uh, that hold us up as people who are hardworking and able, but also say that we are not leaders and we're not seen as leaders. And that's why 
Asian Americans are rarely encouraged to pursue leadership positions. Dr. Yu at UC Irvine says the lack of diversity in leadership has consequences. I mean, it comes down to, is diversity good? Uh, generally speaking, I think that fields such as medicine, business, law, sports, and so many other things, they really thrive when we have fresh new ideas, new perspectives, new thoughts, new approaches to all of the problems that we have to face. Yu says, of course, Asian Americans aren't the only ones underrepresented in some part of medicine. Black and Hispanic doctors and women physicians are broadly underrepresented in the field. Dr. Pan in Sacramento says that bringing visibility to the gap is some kind of progress. First of all, Asian Americans need to speak out about this problem. We cannot remain silent anymore. We need to be sure we're seen. We are underrepresented in medicine and leadership. In fact, we see this not only in medicine, but over and over again in tech, in law, in um, journalism. Uh, we see this uh, repeatedly. And so we know it's a bigger issue than just medicine and that needs to change. It's not clear how these changes will happen, but Pan and you both say that talking about the problem is a step. It's being called the Barbie boost. Going to the movies is hot again because of audience magnets like Barbie and Oppenheimer. NPR's Elizabeth Blair, NPR's Elizabeth Blair looks at whether the booming theater business can be sustained. The global box office hit $4.5 billion in July. According to the research firm Gower Street, it's the single highest grossing month since before the pandemic began. Where are we going? Barbie land. What? On a recent Friday afternoon, plenty of women were out to see Barbie at the Regal in Silver Spring, Maryland. None of us um, own any pink, so we all had to borrow from other people. 20-year-old Elia Safir and her friend Maya Peek say they usually watch movies at home on one of the streaming services, but... This is my second time seeing it. <laughs> Do you think the experience will get you going back to the theaters more often? I think if they could replicate something where it's more of like an event for us all to go, where it was actually more involvement and participation, that would be really cool because, you know, you can't get that just by sitting at home. Some theaters have life-size Barbie boxes for photo ops, pink Corvette-shaped popcorn buckets, and pink drinks. We sold, you know, 7,000 froses or something like that. I, I can't keep the rosé on the shelf. Paul Brown owns the Terrace Theater in Charleston, South Carolina. He says Barbie and Oppenheimer are fueling the box office, but other movies are also doing well. We have Meg, uh, which is very popular because we live in a beach town where there's a bunch of sharks. <laughs> Everybody out of water! We have Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because there's a dearth of good children's movies out, so that's bringing in an audience. And also bringing in an older set that sort of grew up with that brand. And remember... Don't let any human see you, because why? Humans are the demon scum of the earth. Avoid them. The competition for humans' leisure time is fierce, and theaters have faced all kinds of challenges over the decades. Big screens in people's homes, television got really good, COVID. Michael O'Leary of the National Association of Theater Owners says critics have predicted the demise of cinemas before. Obviously, having a global pandemic where the government basically told you you could not 
operate as a movie theater. And, you know, that's an unprecedented challenge. But even in that context, you saw the industry pull together and move forward. Only about 5% of theaters closed during the pandemic. Now they're facing the writers and actors strikes. Paul Dergarabedian, a senior media analyst for Comscore, says the prolonged strikes could disrupt the pipeline of movies. Where this becomes very problematic is over the long term. If you don't have actors and writers, you don't have movies. If you don't have movies, you don't have box office. And, and movie theaters need movies to sustain their business. And to thrive, he says, theaters need all parties to work together, from studios to marketers to actors, writers and directors. But even when everyone is firing on all cylinders, it's not a guarantee of box office success. Theater owner Paul Brown. These are good movies. These are good original movies. They're not based on comic books. For our audience, you know, we'll do okay with the Marvels, but, but there's a fatigue out there for that kind of stuff, if you ask me. Brown says he'll keep showing Barbie and Oppenheimer for as long as the economics make sense. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. On a hot August day in 2011, the rock band Sonic Youth played a show in New York City that would be their last in the United States. Just a few months later, band members Kim Gordon and Thurston Moore would divorce, leading to the end of Sonic Youth's 30-year run. Now, recordings of that final U.S. show have just been released as an album. NPR music contributor Grayson Haver Curran dug into some of the feelings and context going into that final show. They played these summer shows in New York, and this August 2011 show just seemed like another summer gig. But it turns out two things were happening. First, Steve Shelley, the drummer, built this set list that was you know, had the, some of these songs that they hadn't played in 20, almost 30 years. So that in itself was pretty remarkable and pretty special. But also working in the background, um, kind of unbeknownst to some of the members of the band is that Kim Gordon and Thurston Moore, you know, the couple that, that is very much like the inspirational center of this band is splitting up. There's an affair happening. And most of the band doesn't know that at this point. And this turns out to be their last show in the United States. They announced basically a breakup in the coming weeks. The band finds out in the next few days. They go to South America and play a few more shows, but like for all intents and purposes, this is kind of the last stand, especially the last hometown stand for this New York and American indie rock institution. People who are there uh, talk about it as, you know, this, this sort of miracle that, you know, this moment of their life that they were there and they were able to see this because, you know, no one had any idea that this was the end, which is hard to keep clear in retrospect because there are songs where it almost seems like Kim and Thurston are kind of like having this heated marital debate uh, on stage, you know, because Flower, which is a song from the mid 80s, and Kim Gordon is essentially shouting, support the power of women, use the power of man. Meanwhile, Thurston Moore has this solo album called Psychic Hearts. In the beginning, is very much about like this sort of downtrodden guy who is kind of a cad. Like? 
it's this scene of like collapsing American domesticity and you're just kind of bummed out about the narrator of this song and kind of what he's gone through and, and there's this dad that's like cheating and you're like, oh, what's happening here as I listen to these two adults uh, sing these songs on stage? And when you hear this tape back a dozen years later, it's, it's hard not to hear it in that context. I thought that might be the story I was reporting, this sort of, you know, soap opera of feelings and he said, she said, but it wasn't that at all, really. It was a band, for the most part, that thought they were doing what they did. And it was kind of business as usual. And learning about how that unfolded and sort of how the pedestrian nature of this moment of this concert became this landmark event. I think that's how history is made, right? We don't really always realize that we're living in history. We kind of realize that retroactively. And so it was really interesting to unpack those layers and see this thing that just felt very ordinary emerge into something extraordinary and something that we're still talking about 12 years later. And now that I think people will be able to sort of cherish and put on their record shelves forever. Mm -hmm.